Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, this week, we have yet another true crime episode. These true crime series are always our most fun to do. We love just bouncing theories off of each other. We love uh, telling stories about uh, investigations and about disasters. So for this week, we decided to cover one of the deadliest plane crashes in all of aviation history, which was the Tenerife disaster. So this had a massive impact on the airline industry and the procedures which pilots use. So first of all, let's give a little bit of background to what actually happened on the on the accident, or like a little bit of what happened on the day of the accident. So the accident at Tenerife occurred on the afternoon of March 27th, 1997, when two fully loaded 747s collided on the runway at Los Rodeos Airport in the Canary Islands. But to understand what led up to this accident, we first have to go back a few hours to that morning on the neighboring island of Gran Canaria. So the Canary Islands and Gran Canaria in particular are a very popular vacation destination just off the west coast of Africa and governed by Spain. However, the Spanish governance was highly controversial. And on the morning of the 27th, a separatist terrorist organization actually planted multiple bombs inside the terminal at the airport. Luckily, no one was hurt during the first explosion, but the airport was immediately evacuated and all incoming flights were forced to divert. Most of the aircraft in the region landed at Los Rodeos Airport on the island of Tenerife, including KLM Flight 4805 and Pan Am Flight 1736, the two 747s. They, along with dozens of other jumbo jets, landed at Los Rodeos, which was not at all designed to handle a large amount of traffic. It only had one runway and one taxiway, which ran parallel. Because it was a Sunday, there was also only two air traffic controllers on duty at the airport that day. The airport also did not have a ground radar or any other equipment to assist in low visibility conditions, a fact that became crucial as a thick fog rolled in over the airport. So already you can see that this is all coming together to make a very bad situation. I mean, we have an airport that... Sorry, go ahead, Paul. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You got an airport with little equipment to aid low visibility situations, a low visibility situation and multiple aircraft about to land. That's just. Not only that, but two massive 747s. So the one thing you'd have to be thinking right now is where are you going to even house and feed all these people? This is very uh, similar to if anyone's ever heard of uh, Gander, Newfoundland, where in the wake of 9-11, a couple hundred planes had to land in the small uh, village of Gander, Newfoundland uh, on the east coast of Canada. It was a very small village. And amazingly, the whole town came together to house and feed all the people there. Uh, That's completely off topic, but I would encourage anyone to do more research on that as it is a truly amazing and uh, really inspirational story as how people came together during um, a disaster at a time of tragedy. However, unfortunately, in this case, the tragedy that occurred at this small airport was pretty bad as well. It was one of the largest in all of aviation history. So at around 5 p.m., the police declared that Grand Canaria had been cleared and was now safe to receive passengers. So they'd gone through the entire uh, terminal with dogs and robots, things like that, 
to uh, try and see if there's any other uh, weapons or anything else dangerous in the terminal. And they'd found that, nope, nothing else dangerous there. You can start letting people back in. So um, the flight crews all began to start up their aircraft and they were preparing to depart the small island at uh, Los Rodeos, the small airport there. So the crew of the KLM flight was particularly anxious to get airborne as they were approaching their maximum work hours meaning that any more delays could send them over their time limit, in which case they would be required to clock off and sleep for at least eight hours. This would be highly inconvenient, not just to the KLM flight, but to the others as well, since their plane was parked near the end of the taxiway, essentially blocking access to the runway for all other parked aircraft. So to sort of give uh, an idea of what the layout is here, we have one runway next to it, going down the length of the runway is the taxiway, and next to that is the terminal and the tower. So all the aircraft were lined up facing one direction and right at the head of that line was the KLM flight. So it would be very inconvenient and very challenging to try and turn all of these massive planes around if the KLM flight wasn't able to move. And in that case, it probably would be easier just to wait the eight hours for the pilots to sleep and for the KLM to move. So this greatly annoyed the crew of a uh, Pan Am flight, which was forced to wait behind them. So KLM had to refuel. And for some unknown reason, uh, the captain, a guy named uh, Jacob Veldhausen van Zanten, ordered the aircraft to be refueled far more than was needed for this short flight. So um, Tenerife and Grand Canaria are both part of the same island system. They're both part of the Canary Islands. So it was really going to be a short flight, no longer than an hour. It was probably going to be even shorter than that. Yet he had fueled up enough, in fact, that their aircraft could have made it all the way back to Amsterdam. Now, this massive refueling order would have drastic consequences later. So just keep that in mind as we keep talking about this uh, investigation here and this, this uh, massive disaster. So after the KLM had uh, finished refueling, they taxied out on the runway and began along the length of it. So because the, the taxiway was so full up of parked aircraft, really the only way an aircraft could get to the end of the runway was by taxiing along the length of it. So what they were planning on doing was having the KLM go all the way down to the end and wait to take off. Now the Pan Am flight would follow right behind it as they wanted to take off afterwards. Now. Um, Pan Am was instructed that they would turn off at the third taxiway exit, and then they'd just continue along the taxiway from there, which was freed up. Now, uh, as the Pan Am moved slowly along the runway, it became clear to the pilots in it that finding taxiway three would be a lot more challenging than they thought. So they were in an unfamiliar airport in very poor visibility. Like when I'm saying there's dense fog, like it was absolutely awful like to the point that you could not see maybe 50 feet in front of you. That is how bad the visibility is here. And you have to remember they're at a very small airport that they have never been to before and is likely only on one or two of their maps. Now, to make that worse, the uh, flight crew for the Pan Am were looking at their charts, like the one or two charts they'd have of this airport, and they noted that to turn off onto exit three, they would have to make a turn of 148 degrees, something which was nearly impossible in a 747. So as such, the Pan Am continued past exit three 
as they figured they wouldn't be able to make the turn. They decided instead to go to exit uh, on the taxiway four, which had a much more manageable 35 degree turn. So as the pilots began to slow down and turn onto exit four, they looked out the right side of the plane, so at the first officer's window, and they were horrified to see the lights of the KLM racing towards them. So upon seeing this, they immediately put all four engines to max power in an attempt to clear the runway. The KLM crew also saw the Pan Am plane and immediately pulled back on the yoke, trying desperately to take off in time. But the extra fuel came back to haunt them as the plane was too heavy and smashed into the side of the other 747, with the fuel igniting immediately. The top half of the Pan Am was ripped off completely, with the rest of the cabin being engulfed in flames. The KLM, meanwhile, was able to get airborne for only a few seconds before crashing to the ground and skidding to a stop just a few hundred feet down the runway. In fact, one interesting uh, thing here was that when firefighters first arrived on scene, they weren't even aware that two planes had collided, and neither were the air traffic controllers at first either because they had only heard the big explosion. They hadn't seen what had caused it. That's how dense this fog was. So when the firefighters came up on the scene, they only found the one plane. It wasn't until they started driving around like the length of the runway that they actually came across the other one. Um, so of the 248 passengers on crew on the uh, KLM flight, there were no survivors. On the Pan Am flight, there were 61 survivors, including the first officer, whose testimony would be vital to understanding what happened. So overall, 583 people lost their lives in what is now one of the worst disasters in all of aviation history. Hmm. Yeah, sorry about that. I just had, uh, I had something in my throat and I had to cough for a second. So I just thought I'd turn my um, microphone off real quick. Um, so now that we understand what happened here, now that we understand the events, we have to ask a very important question. Why? Why could two of the most modern aircraft of the time with two highly trained crews crash into each other? Now, another sort of interesting fact to point out here is that um, Captain, um, oh, let's see, how do I pronounce his name again? I have it written down here. Um, uh, Captain Belthausen. Captain Veldhausen was actually one of the chief pilots for KLM, and he was actually a member of their investigation team. So anytime there was any uh, major incident, he was one of the pilots who would be sent down to investigate the crews. Well, at first, they didn't realize that he was involved in this accident. So KLM tried to raise him over the telephone, and it was only till they like looked at the manifest for this aircraft that they're like, uh-oh, he was actually the pilot involved in this accident. That's going to be a big problem. All right, so uh, where were we? Right, so investigation teams arrived from Spain, the United States, and the Netherlands. And even though each team had a right to be there and be on this case, their biases began to complicate things as they were all eager to pass the blame off on one another. So it's not really the best looking thing if your company or your country was responsible for the deadliest aircraft disaster in history. So it's it's pretty understandable that these guys were all trying to find something that would incriminate the others. However, it does really complicate things. I would say that would certainly complicate things quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So it was clear from the early stages of this investigation that the KLM plane had taken off before they were given clearance. So investigators now needed to know why, because a highly trained pilot would never just start rolling and like just take off. That's not something you normally see a pilot doing. Um, so they were luckily able to find the black boxes in uh, the wreckage. So for anyone who doesn't know, the black boxes are little boxes. They're usually found in the back of the plane. And in them, they have the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, which record everything that goes on on the flight deck and everything that the aircraft itself is doing. So with this, they were able to actually take a look at what the pilots were doing and what they were saying before the aircraft uh, collided, before the two planes crashed into each other. Um, so when they opened up these black boxes, they actually found some uh, really interesting things on the cockpit voice recording. And what they found was actually very shocking too. So Captain Welthausen van Zanten had immediately begun to take off once the KLM reached the end of the runway. Once they started rolling down the runway, First Officer Klaas Myers spoke up and reminded Welthausen that they didn't have clearance. At this, the captain put the parking brake back on and told him to call the tower to get it. However, when KLM called for takeoff clearance, they were instead given departure instructions. The difference being that departure instructions only tell pilots what route to take after takeoff, and crucially, does not provide a clearance for them to do so. Sorry, uh, Paul, you had your uh, microphone turned on there. Is there something you wanted to add here? Uh, nope. Okay. Right, so um, upon hearing these departure instructions, the crew misinterpreted these as permission to take off, with the first officer reading them back and ending with, we are now at takeoff. The controller responded saying, okay, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. At the same moment, the Pan Am captain jumped in to remind them that they were still taxing along the runway. Unfortunately, these two radio calls clashed, causing the KLM crew to hear only static. The only word that they were able to hear clearly was okay, which Feldhausen took to be permission to take off. So as they rolled down the runway, flight engineer Willem Schroeder asked the captain, asking if he was sure the other 747 had cleared the runway, to which he responded he was. After this assurance, it is believed that the other crew members were still hesitant, but reluctant to question the senior pilot. So again, it's important to understand um, who this captain was, who Captain uh, Welthausen was. He was actually a very, very senior pilot at KLM. He was one of their highest ranked guys. Um, Another thing was that he was actually quite famous back in the 70s in the Netherlands. He was sort of like the poster boy for KLM. He was actually in a few of their advertisements and their magazines showing off uh, some of their different routes. So a lot of the other crew members, like the co-pilot and the flight engineer, were probably pretty hesitant to, <coughs> excuse me, I have something caught in my throat here. Uh, so they were probably pretty hesitant to question someone of his authority. So. With this, the investigators were able to draw a definitive conclusion of what had happened. A combination of Captain Welthausen van Zanten's impatience, the reluctance of his fellow crew to question his authority, and misunderstandings between the pilots and air traffic control had led to this catastrophic accident. 
it is absolutely insane. These all seem like very small, very minute details on their own. But when you add all these small things up, they led into a massive disaster. Right. When everything ad adds up all of a sudden, you're getting a much you're getting a much bigger problem than just those small individual ones. Yeah, exactly. So following this accident, though, there were quite a lot of changes to the um, aviation industry and there were quite a lot of major impacts. So just to tell us a little bit about these impacts is Sergeant McConnell. So Sergeant McConnell, go ahead. Okay, hopefully you guys can hear me okay. So following the Tenerife uh, disaster, KM took responsibility and paid a settlement to the families of the victims. Um, after the accident, there were also many changes made to the aviation industry to ensure something like this would never happen again. First, ground radar and other tracking equipment became more widely used so that air traffic controllers were always aware of where the planes they were directing were. Secondly, the crew members are now not only allowed, but to encourage and question the actions of their fellow pilots and overrule them if they feel they were unsafe. Finally, the pilots are now required to read back any instructions given to them, and they aren't able to use ambiguous terms like okay or accept them as clearances. And if they are ever unsure of what they are doing, they are required to call ATC and get clearance. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So yeah, um... I'm willing to bet there are a few pilots who listen to this podcast, but to most of them, these all sound like very standard things, like reading back the instructions you're given, not using ambiguous terms, and um, being able to question the authority of your, their pilots. That sounds like fairly typical stuff, but before this accident, it absolutely was not. And it was this tragedy that caused those standards to be made, that you have to read back what instructions are given so you fully understand them. And you're allowed to question the other pilot's authority if you feel like he's doing something unsafe. And those are now um, mainstays in aviation. And I'm willing to bet they have caused many more tragedies to be averted. So one thing I think we've learned throughout these true crime series is that some of our biggest safety regulations are written in blood. That's really the only time change has happened for the better after there has been a catastrophic disaster and they actually needed to make safety improvements. So with all that said, that is just about our time for this week. So we really hope you enjoyed our uh, another true crime episode. We really have a lot of fun making these. Um, so that's really all from us tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good one. Goodbye, everyone.